it's an honor to be sitting in the deep quiet that you have cultivated. It's beautiful for us to get to feel this with you. So as you sit and pay close attention, there's a lot to see, isn't there? So much in the body and mind. Okay, I'm talking louder. There's so much to see in the body and mind. And the Buddha teaches that if we look carefully, if we really pay close attention, we will see that all existence is marked by three basic characteristics, which Anna mentioned the other night, impermanence, fact that there's change, this satisfactoriness or the fact that there's suffering, and selflessness or no self. And the Buddha taught that part of the path to liberation is to deeply understand, deeply, viscerally understand these three characteristics. And as usual, he said, don't take my word for this. This is one of those things, this is not a theory, it's not a theology. This is something he invited us to deeply meditate on, deeply reflect on, so that we could find out for ourselves, are these actually there? Are these the characteristics of life? So the liberation that's associated with understanding the three characteristics doesn't come from just thinking about these ideas or reading a book about them. Um, Like (laughs) the idea of impermanence, we can kind of go, yeah, you know, everything changes. Um, For instance, it's only been the last few months that I personally have needed to use this light. And um, it kind of creates this thing where it's not as easy for me to see the people right in the front, which I'm used to. So okay, everything's changing. There's a kind of way to do that on the surface. Oh well. But the uh, freedom that's associated with these characteristics develops not only as we see them, but as we open to and accept So can I accept that the first row of people is a little, you know, I'm kind of not used to the bright light in my eye. So imagine meeting impermanence without resistance. It's almost an un-American thought, you know, (laughs) really. Like, what? Aren't we supposed to go kicking and screaming into, you know, old age with spending multi-billions of dollars on every possible sort of lotion and potion and lift and whatever we could possibly do to, to hold off the change. You know, that's so deeply ingrained in our culture. Um, I will, there's a poem I love, very short by, it's called um, The Old Women's Song, and it's a Native American poem. So the old woman sings, Spring turns to summer, summer turns to fall. People are born, grow old, and die. Isn't it good to be a part of all of this? So that last line is the clincher, isn't it? You know, how many of us can say, isn't it good that my eyes are changing, or isn't it good that during the best sitting I've ever had in my life, someone came and you know, tapped me and asked me if I could do their work job or whatever. Isn't change good? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, impermanence. Everything changes. Some of us here have um, been to and, and practiced at and taught at the Lama Foundation, which some of you may have been to in the high mountain wilderness of New Mexico. 
used to be covered with thousands of acres of the most beautiful forest. And then there was a huge, huge forest fire, which took out not only almost all of the retreat center, but the thousands of acres of the forest. So now there's thousands of acres of black poles. And um, we had, Jack and I were talking right after the fire, well, what can we do to help raise some money for Lama? And we thought, <laughs> well, what a perfect opportunity. We could do like a seven or ten day retreat on impermanence. <laughs> and then we realized, but no one will come, you know? <laughs> no one wants to look at this. Who wants to see this? Who wants to see, really see, that everything changes, that every one we love will die. I mean, we really go to a great, we put a tremendous energy into not having to see that. Thank you very much. But it's true. And it's not, I don't want to make it sound like impermanence is all just this loss and sadness. Obviously, like at the Lama Foundation, um, this huge change opened up the cycle of death and rebirth, which is a very creative cycle that comes from change. When I went back one year after the fire, there were already trees taller than me in one year because the force of change, the the fire of transformation, um, brings about so much creativity So impermanence, the fact that everything changes, is not bad or good. It just is true. It's just so. One of our friends, Roger Walsh, who's probably um, done more meditation than all of us together, um, was having some pain in his body, and he said... uh, to his wife, who's also a Buddhist practitioner, he said, boy, when you get older, the body takes a lot of attention. And she said, well, don't worry, it'll be gone soon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know if it's so comforting to have a Buddhist (laughs) wife. (laughs) Thank you, dear. I don't know if that's what he was looking for. (laughs) So in our practice, to work with the characteristic of impermanence, we are instructed to notice change in every aspect of life. In meditation, we see that every phenomena, every sensation, every thought, every emotion arises and passes and changes. Nothing, no matter how bad or good it is, stays. And you've definitely seen that. We were instructed a couple of days ago to notice beginnings and endings. We're really noticing that everything comes and everything goes. It's part of the practice. When I was in Thailand practicing with this fabulous, eccentric meditation master, Ajahn Chimnian, he would have us go out for walking meditation and then occasionally stop somewhere on the grounds of the monastery He said, just stop, Um, and then for about 10 minutes, whatever you see, reflect on its impermanence. So if one of those mangy dogs goes by, or if a little child goes by, or if you notice the big meditation temple that's being built, or if you see a monk go by, or your husband walk by, whatever it is, reflect on the fact that they are impermanent flower, anything. And he wasn't doing this to be morbid. He was doing it because we're working in practice to begin to cultivate a different relationship to change. The Buddha says, fruitful as the act of giving is, Yet it is still more fruitful to go with confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and undertake the five precepts of virtue. Fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful 
to maintain loving kindness in being for only as long as the milking of a cow. Fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain perception of impermanence in being for only as long as the snapping of your finger. this, This really sort of says, pay attention. This is really a powerful thing to learn about, according to the Buddha. So the very deep insight into impermanence isn't about, isn't as heavy and sad, but in fact this insight is a Dharma gate, is one of the possible gates into awakening. And I also want to say this particular teaching, like everything else, can be abused. You know, oh, my very best friend of 30 years just died yesterday, but she was impermanent. You know, that's not liberation. That's denial. You know, that's repression. That's, that's not freedom. There's often, because impermanence is talking a lot about change, which can include loss, impermanence, asks us to know how to grieve. So we allow grief to come when it needs to come, when there's been loss. Our task is to not get lost or identified into the grief so that it can go when it's finished. Joanna Macy, our wonderful, beloved Joanna, says, just because something is impermanent doesn't mean we don't cherish it and we don't grieve if we lose it. poem by Jennifer Wellwood, actually just part of it. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So you can feel in this poem that she's working out with cultivating a new relationship to impermanence. And in this poem, what we hear is the surrender to impermanence. Yeah, let's just admit it. Let's surrender to it. But as we know, as we humans know, often we don't surrender to it, do we? And then we suffer, which is, um, brings us to the next of these three characteristics, the suffering. The Buddha said, cause of suffering is that we try to grasp, we try to hold on to that which cannot be held on to. And I know you've probably seen that several hundred times at least this week. So this, uh, a woman, one of our Sangha members wrote an article for the Chronicle about the woes of looking for a roommate in Marin County. So she says, this time our candidate was a wiry, hostile woman named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps, wearing a skin-tight spandex bodysuit with illuminated wrist weights. Throughout our meeting, she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. What do you do, Naomi, we asked. These days, she told us, I'm mainly doing my butt. (laughs) Gets worse. Once you pass 35, if you let your butt go for a minute, you might as well just pull over to the side of the road and die. (laughs) You can understand, and this is the example of what we're calling 
suffering. (laughs) Suffering. Mm. It's good to laugh. You know, you try to find jokes about suffering because, um, you know, (laughs) we need to laugh about it. I mean, suffering. You know, every night in, in the talk, we mention in some way or some long list about, you know, the incredible human tragedies that, that are part of, of life every day on this earth for everyone. We all know, we know what suffering is in here. And we all know, especially by sitting here, that it isn't just out there in the world where all the various starving children or whatever are, but right here in this incredibly beautiful, serene meditation hall, we know that there is suffering. And if you don't know it, if you actually think you're the only one, I will tell you, you're not. And it's by directly investigating the nature of suffering in our own body and our own heart and our own mind that we can learn the insights that bring an end to suffering. It's all happening right here, right here in this experience. We know, you know, we sit here and there's all the various forms of anxiety and self-judgment and depressions and sadnesses and guilts and shames. All this stuff can come and move around. But the this quality called dissatisfaction or suffering can also be very subtle. So you can be sitting having this amazing meditation, finally. It's so, so still. And you think, God, I just want this to last at least until the bell rings. You know, <laughs> please, God. You know, and or, or maybe it's very subtle. It's just, if I just sit just like this and breathe just like this, maybe this will last. And even this slight, subtle grasping is called suffering compared to the great peace of being. So in practice, we begin to see this arising in very subtle ways. We also see, as we practice, how much dissatisfaction fills our life and runs our life and shapes our life. If we're paying attention, we see that. And, you know, why? The reason is that we are such a tender, sensitive, vulnerable species. You know, we, we yearn to just be happy and comfortable and to have a happy ending. You know, can't I just live happily ever after? We want to be safe and secure. These are actually beautiful, intrinsic longings. The longing to be happy is a beautiful thing. But unfortunately, we put enormous amounts of energy and money and time into trying to find the happiness and security in things that are impermanent, like our IRA or, you know, whatever, our hairdo, whatever it is. And there is nothing wrong with having an IRA. You know, may we all have big IRAs. or some Ira at all. But um, the suffering that we're talking about is what happens when our happiness depends on having that which is outside of us. Some friends sent me, knowing that I always am looking for things that are strange and weird, they sent me in <laughs> this article called Weird Insurance. And um, this is just to show you about how far we'll go to try to find security. It's this, there's one company that sells alien abduction insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Cost $150 per year for $1.5 million coverage. Comments. (laughs) One claim has already been paid. (laughs) Okay, it gets better. 
the same, the same company also sells werewolf insurance. <laughs> Comments, you must turn into one in, in order to get the money. <laughs> okay, keeps going. The writer says, perhaps even weirder than, <laughs> this just cracks me up, perhaps even weirder than the risks the policies insure against is that so many people have purchased the coverage. <laughs> 20,000 alien abduction policies, for example, have been sold. 4,000 immaculate conception policies. <laughs> and this is the best one. 4,500 John Wayne Bobbitt policies, which pay only if <laughs> and then it says dot 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 we remember the story <laughs> yeah we will go to incredible extremes won't we to try <laughs> to try to find security in an insecure world and you know I'm, that's just this outrageous article but we all do it in different ways all the time. We do. Because we're humans and that's what we do. So the practice asks us to try to become, to get the insight into suffering and what brings suffering. So one of the reflections is that we're asked to see what fuels my suffering. What is feeding it? And we, in practice, we actually see how when we hold on, it hurts more, and how when we let go, there's less suffering. We experience that in a moment-to-moment way. We, um, We can ask the question, what would I need to let go of to decrease my suffering? It's kind of a scary question sometimes. <laughs> I'll give you a frivolous example. I was happily married to my husband for 15 years at the point when this happened, when it finally dawned on me that he couldn't see crumbs the way I saw crumbs, that I hung on to that and struggled with that for 15 years. And uh, finally, something dawned on me that if I took the about two seconds that it takes for me to wipe the counter so that it's like I want it, there's less suffering. So I actually <laughs> let it go. I mean, it's not that he doesn't try to wipe the crumbs. It's that he just doesn't see the ones I see. So, um, <laughs> And I know this is a little bit of a dicey example because it can be taken to bad extremes. I must admit, though, I still insist that he put the toilet seat down. (laughs) I won't go into that, but, um, you know, of course there are times to to take a stand. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't talking about the toilet seat, though. I was actually thinking of social injustice when I said that. Thursday night, I think people are ready to laugh. So if there's social injustice, we do what we can do. If, if we're sick, we do everything possible to try to, you know, to get better. I think we just need to laugh. <laughs> it's interesting that this is a section on suffering. <laughs> God, I wish I had more time I'd tell. <laughs> I won't even say that. <coughs> so we do what we can do um, to alleviate suffering, but there is, as we all know, a great amount of suffering in each life that can't be fixed or taken away, and it can only be open to. So the Buddha challenges us 
to learn to meet suffering, to meet the unpleasant directly. We're so um, conditioned normally to turn away, to try to escape or deny or avoid the unpleasant or suffering. But we're actually asked to sit, to learn, can, if with this knee pain, can I actually be here with it? Could I open around it? And what we learn, and I imagine that you've had moments of this, is that even if it's for a moment, if we can drop our resistance, the pain or the, the suffering can transform. The pain might still be there. But the suffering of the mind can transform. There's a woman I um, know who was a very um, attractive, powerful woman, uh, was a corporate trainer and a public speaker, and she got cancer of the mouth and tongue. And so, and it gave her a 90% only a 10% chance of surviving her treatments, but she survived. However, her face is very disfigured, a whole lot of her face and her throat, and she speaks with a lisp, a big lisp. You know, it's not just a little lisp. It's a big one. How do you not, how would you open to that? This woman now does stand-up comedy in public settings, and the whole show is about things like drooling at the restaurant. I mean, she's, she's right there. And it, it lo- I mean, you, you don't normally look at people whose face looks like that. She's under the bright lights, making jokes, talking about what it's like to be walking down the aisle of the grocery store with the kids saying, Mommy, what's that? And she turns it into comedy. That's a way that she's working to open around suffering, transforming suffering. So as I said um, several nights ago, when I talked about compassion, which sounds like about a year ago, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Lifetimes ago. um, The great opportunity or possibility in suffering is that it can open compassion. And we've all heard stories about uh, great openings that have happened to people in the midst of tragedy. And some of the most moving of those stories that I've ever heard happened um, where people had spiritual awakenings during the Holocaust in the camps. In the camps. And these people the stories are told about them, um, were in the midst of the most unthinkable kind of human conditions and suffering, and they became free, free of their self-concern, free of fear, so that what was left was the bodhisattva, the selfless service, just being there, helping others. And often, when asked, you know, how in the world, how can you be so radiant in the midst of that? They would say that the magnitude of the suffering had just opened them beyond themselves. And what remained was the love, was the compassion. So this is one example of what we call selflessness. One, one flavor of it, which brings us to the third characteristic that the Buddha talked about, which is the selfless nature of all existence, including us. The teachings of, of no self um, can be, they can sound baffling, and they are easily misunderstood. And again, this is definitely not something to try to figure out. Uh, You can't think your way there. As the great teacher Ajahn Chah said, if you try to figure this out with your your head, your your head will explode. (laughs) Um, So we we can't figure it out. But rather, we're again asked, 
to pay very close attention to the process of our body, of our mind, of our emotions, and of all of life. Very close attention. And there are times, especially when we get this far into a retreat, when things are very quiet, very spacious. And out of this quietness, a thought will just arise and be known and vanish. And then maybe there's a sensation. It comes, it goes, a memory, a feeling comes and goes, arising and vanishing. We sit, if we pay very close attention, we see there's no one orchestrating this whole thing. There's no central coordinator. It's just this process of life, of feelings, of thoughts, of sensations, arising and disappearing. So for, through very deep meditation and deep reflection, it is possible to directly experience, not think, but actually experience the answer to the great question, who am I? Who am I? And who am I not? If I'm not this body, if I'm not these, these thoughts and these plans and these feelings, who am I? And it can sound strange and sometimes disconcerting if we hear the answer, there's no one there. I mean, (laughs) of course there's someone here. I'm here. I mean, that's our immediate natural response. I've been here all my life. I'm here to prove it, you know. But actually, through deep meditation, we discover that there's no solid, enduring self. There's just this vast interconnection. So, you, you know, we say, well, but I am here. I have my, you know, I'm Deborah. I have my social security number. I have my whole life. I have a car. You know, I'm here. And, and, and so on one level, of course, we do all have a personal self. We have a life. And our life is sacred. We, um, we're responsible to our life. And we really, compassion really tells us to be, to treat our personal self and the personal selves of others with respect and kindness. And in fact, to really have a whole and uh, a happy human life, we need to go to the trouble to cultivate a um, healthy personal life. You know, the get a job, you know, have a friend sort of life. So this great truth of no self is not an excuse to avoid life. But it asks us to look very deeply, uh, look deeper than our stories and our roles. And when we look deeply, we see that these roles and stories are not the deepest definition of who we are. And again, there's nothing wrong with the stories and roles, but when we become contracted or identified with them, that's who I am. That's when we can suffer. That's when we can feel separate. And when we can let go of the various graspings and aversions of the small self, there is a great relief of, of resting in our deeper nature. Um, one great teacher said, no self, no problem. <laughs> Ajahn Jemnian comes walking into the meditation hall saying, 
empty, empty, happy, happy, you know. A Christian mystic, um, Angelis Silesis of the 13th century, says, God whose joy and love are present everywhere cannot come to visit you unless you are not there. Rumi says it a little differently. He says, be like melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. A white flower blooms in the quiet. So I'll tell you a story that happened a long time ago. This woman that the story is about was named Barbara, and she had been a very sincere spiritual seeker for her whole adult life. Um, she tried some Buddhist retreats and told me later when I met her years later, she said, um, when she heard about impermanence, suffering, no self, she thought this was a really depressing religion and um, went on to other things. Then later she was diagnosed with uh, MS, and unfortunately when she began having real um, physical disabilities, her husband uh, left, her husband of 24 years, went off with the secretary and, and the bank account and the house and the whole bit. So in her middle 50s she was suddenly found herself in a very small apartment, a very small amount of money, and a very serious disease. And she told me that for about a year and a half, she spent a lot of time in what she called hell realms, where she was just filled in her body and mind with jealousy and revenge and anger and self-pity and, and fear and all the stuff that one might feel in that situation. And somewhere, you know, a year or so into this very bad, hard time, she um, remembered the Buddha's teachings just a little, and she got some tapes. And this time it seemed like, instead of depressing, this was like the oasis. She said, this is the only thing that made any sense. And she began practicing, and she was very much homebound, so she, she had a lot of time to sit what she was doing. And she said, basically, it came down to if I was clinging to how my life was supposed to be, I was in hell. And if I could let go, or just let it be for even a few moments that this is my life right now, I could experience peace. So this was very motivating for her, coming out of this difficulty. So she started practicing a lot. And by the time I met her, which was a few years into this, what we would call a retreat, that's what she was doing all the time, was practicing. Uh, She'd just done this enormous amount of work and letting go. And most of what her practice was when I met her was opening to the continual challenges of having this illness, multiple sclerosis. Just one of the many things um, that I worked with her, I would go to her house every week. Um, and she had always been a person who took care of everybody else and, had, and was very close with her father and had been expecting that as his aging progressed, she would be helping him. And, um, of course, that's not how it turned out at all. At age 83... This man, who I met many times, very sweet man, moved from Iowa, where he had lived his whole life, to this little apartment, slept on the couch, and took care, the best he could, of his very sick daughter. And it was so moving to see these two together, really trying to help each other. So this letting go for her was continual. It, 
she had to let go of the self that was taking care of others and be taken care of. She had to let go of the self that had been very active in the community and be basically a shut-in. She had to let go of the self or the one that was very identified with being very articulate. She was a very articulate woman. Um, Because her speech began to be very slow and slurred, her mind was still completely clear. That's Imagine this. The body was deteriorating, but the mind was clear. And she knew this wasn't going to just last for a few months. It wasn't like she was in a dying process that was going to come in the next few months. This was going to be years and she knew this. And I knew her. Um, she even had to let go of the ability to take her beloved Dharma tapes, which were her best friends, and to put them in and turn them over. She, she even had to have help with that. So when I tell you this, you might be thinking, this woman must have been miserable. This sounds so awful. And, of course, it was hard. It was definitely hard work. But, in fact, this woman, Barbara, just got lighter and lighter and more filled with love and joy the deeper that she went into this. And, and again, I would say she was practicing a lot. Several months before her daughter, who lived on the East Coast, was uh, going to move her to the east and the, and the father so the daughter could help. Every time I went there, I noticed there were more and more people around the bedside of Barbara. And it wasn't because Barbara, was, you know, they weren't there to help her. They were people, um, you know, various speech therapists and physical therapists and friends from the church and different people. And they were coming because visiting her was like going into a cathedral. It was so quiet and so peaceful to be near her. And everyone who went just felt bathed in love. When I would sit with her, which I did every week, it was like dissolving into the sky, just clear and empty. This woman had so wholeheartedly worked moment to moment on seeing the grasping, letting go of the grasping. And she worked to see and open to impermanence. You know, hour by hour, moment by moment, she worked to see and open to suffering. You know, it was something that she was just continually dealing with. And she, in this process, opened, opened right through the small sense of self into a much vaster place of being where she spent a great deal of her time in great ease and emptiness. She washed herself of herself and the white flower opened in her. And anybody who got near her could feel it. The last time I went to visit her, um, she worked really hard to say a few words to me, um, because it took a lot of energy to get language out. But she said, um, and I will never forget this, this was 20 years ago that this all happened. She said, I would not wish what's happened to me on anyone. But for myself, I would not change a thing. I found what I was seeking. Endless love. She was an extraordinary um, teacher, inspiring woman. And although most of us in this room are not dealing with serious illnesses, there are some who are. Um, 
we're doing exactly the same work that Barbara was doing in that apartment, in that wheelchair, the same practice, sacred work. Each moment that we meet a loneliness or a boredom or a joy with mindfulness, without grasping it, trying to hold it, or trying to push it away, we are setting ourselves free. We are washing ourselves of ourself. And it's also possible for us to experience, and this isn't something way far down the road, you can have moments of it just during a sitting, a moment of awakening through the gates of these characteristics. So in practice, in our sitting, we can awaken through these characteristics by practicing letting go, as we've been talking about. We can also reflect on impermanence in every aspect of our life and have an intention to come to peace, to work to come to peace with impermanence. We can pay attention to what is feeding and prolonging our suffering. And we can learn to let go moment to moment. And we can look at what roles and stories and preferences are um, holding, uh, creating a sense of I or self. And then with uh, compassion, we can consider loosening our grip, uh, our identification with those roles, with those various I'm this or I'm that. And that doesn't mean that we stop being the good mother or the hard worker. These are roles or identification. But we, we consider if, for some reason, that profession, like Barbara's, is gone, or some reason, you know, heaven forbid, that child is gone and I'm not the mother, who am I? If I'm not my roles and stories, who is this? And through this kind of practice, looking into these characteristics, practicing over years, we eventually directly experience a truth that's beyond conditions and concepts. Truth that's beyond our wanting and fearing. It's beyond the I'm special or I'm hopeless. And immense openness is found. Peaceful and completely clear. Empty. It's empty and at the same time compassionately interconnected with everything. So this boundless nature is our true home. And we can realize it because it's who and what we are at the deepest level. Kalu Rinpoche says, we live in illusion and in the appearance of things. There is a reality We are that reality. When we understand this, we will see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So I'm going to finish by reading just a few lines out of Um, the autobiography of a great teacher, Hamid Amas, who's been very important to to Jack and I and a number of our teachers here at Spirit Rock. Um, This autobiography was taken out of the journal he was writing during a period of very strong awakening. 
so at this point in this journal, um, what's happened right before the part I'm going to read is that he's been crying and grieving because he's seen the effect of his attachments. And he, see, and he says, I see that the letting go has to be total. I need to let go of practically everything, a state, a station, fruit of work, contribution, recognition, everything. I must let go of everything because none of it is mine. As I, the individual self, relinquish my hold, I in effect accept and embrace the complete voidness of the absolute, the infinity of silence is what remains. Luminous stillness, absolute transparency, indescribable intimacy. Just want to add so that you don't get the wrong impression about the letting go that's total. This is a householder with a house and a car and a family. This was a complete inner letting go. That's the work that we're doing. So let's sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.